may be seated. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. You can also find our text today in the bulletin insert. Verses 1 through 10 of John 10 will be what we will be looking at today as we consider this fourth I Am statement in our series this summer on the I Ams of Jesus. We want to know who Jesus is, and the best source for knowing who He is is what does He say about Himself. There's a lot of confusing thoughts today about who is the Jesus of the Bible, who's the historical Jesus, who is Jesus to me. And we want to settle who Jesus is by what the infallible, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word of God says, not on our own whims, not on what the majority or the consensus say. And one of the lenses that I've been looking at this uh, section, these next three I Am statements from, I've kind of been looking at the personality, the identity of who Jesus is, and how that shapes our identity in Christ, because who Jesus is affects really who we are as we are in Christ, as we are His children. And so, as we look today at John 10, 1 through 10, the context is so important for us to understand the first century context of shepherding, of sheepfolds, construction of sheepfolds. There's a lot we're going to go into because if we don't understand the imagery and the historical nature of what Jesus is describing here, we're going to get to some wrong conclusions, some misapplications. We're, we're taking different statements that Jesus makes, but we're trying to take them in the context of Scripture, both its historical context, its literary context. And I was coming across an um, application this week that one preacher had gotten to, and I, and I was just kind of scratching my head because I, I didn't see how it fit with the context. It went something like, because Christ is the door, we can shut out the pain of our past and open it to greener pastures. And I thought, well, what does this context have to do with the pain of our past or greener pastures, and how does this fit? Well, we need to be grounded in God's Word to understand the meaning of the text before we launch into application. So that's what we want to do here today as we look at this Scripture, as we understand the context of chapter 10, we look back to chapter 9. If you remember last week, um, Aaron was describing for us what had taken place with this man who was born blind. This man who was born blind came to know the light of the world. And that statement of blindness, of, of darkness and of blindness is contrasted to Jesus being the light. He says, I am the light. But the Pharisees who were surrounding, they just didn't get it. They didn't understand. And in fact, as you look at the context here, Jesus perceived that the spiritual leaders of this poor blind man from his birth had so mistreated him, had interrogated him, put him on trial basically, and excommunicated him from their fellowship. And Jesus rebukes them. Jesus rebukes them uh, not only with His direct words, but by also stating who he, who he is in their very presence, that He is, in fact, the door of the sheep, and He is the good shepherd. And these two I am statements that Jesus makes are joined together in this same analogy, in the same portion of Scripture, 
but we're going to divide them out into two distinct uh, messages as Jesus says distinctly, I am the door, and He says, I am the good shepherd. So please, would you follow along as I read uh, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and, they fo- and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was trying to say to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to sit under Your Word, to sit at the feet of Jesus and for Him to explain to us just who He really is. Lord, I pray that in the context of this passage, we today, thousands of years after it was first spoken, would be enlightened, would be strengthened, would be encouraged, Lord, that You would minister by Your grace, by Your Holy Spirit to us, so that we would not just understand the meaning of the text before us, but that we would understand how it applies to our lives, how we can live it out in our day-to-day being. Lord, I pray thanking You for Your Spirit's work in us so that we would understand just what is going on. Lord, minister Your Word to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first century context of shepherding is important. It's rooted actually in the Old Testament uh, description. For thousands of years, God's people have been nomads and shepherders. They had gone taking their flocks, moving from pasture to pasture, from area to area. We read about it in the life of Abraham and Lot and David. We hear the priests of the Old Testament being compared to uh, shepherds, and shepherding was just part of everyday life. And we're going to get into that a little more detail next week when we talk about Jesus being the good shepherd, but we need to understand a little bit about the sheepfold or the corral where the sheep were stored, because when Jesus says He is the door, there's something that comes to mind for those readers. Now, what comes to mind for you? What do you see? I don't recall that there are many shepherds in our congregation. There's a few ranchers. I know people that raise cattle, but sheep, that's, that's another animal altogether. It was helpful for me. Um, I had picked up again a book that I had read a number of years back called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. 
and some of you are familiar with that. It's, it's written by a man who was a pastor but was also a shepherd who had raised sheep in a few different uh, areas, and he really goes into fine detail about what the sheep are like, how to care for them, what to do with them, how the words that are spoken in Scripture really, I guess, come to life and have a fuller meaning when you understand them in their real historical context. And so, I thought it was helpful when I read about one author that was describing the historical cultural context for us. He said that there are two kinds of sheepfolds. He said the first type was large enough to hold several different flocks. It was fairly substantially built and was cared for by a porter or a gatekeeper. So if you could imagine, maybe in a more city context, different shepherds would be out in their fields in different areas, and when nighttime came and they were done feeding in the pastures, they want to bring them into a safe place, a place where they could be kept, they'd be secure, and they could sleep and rest and be ready to go back out. And there was enough of a demand for a central sheepfold that they would have multiple different herds and multiple shepherds that would be in the one sheepfold. Another type of sheepfold was a little more, was little more than a rough circle of stone, and the shepherd himself would lay down across the opening of the entrance into the sheepfold. The shepherd was the door. No sheep could get out, no enemy could come in except over his body. In a very literal sense, then, the shepherd was the door. There was no way in or out except through him kind of like that type of sheepfold to understand the, what Jesus was describing about Himself in this context. Although He does describe uh, this sheepfold has a porter, a gatekeeper that opens in, and there's multiple herds of sheep. It's important for us to really see all that Jesus is trying to communicate in being the door of the sheep. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. It's an exclusive relationship between the shepherd and the sheep that really is signified by the door because the true shepherd and the true sheep are the ones that use the door, and they're distinguished from everyone else. Now, around this keep of sheep would be um, not razor wire. They didn't have barbed wire back then, but they would often put uh, briars and, and thorns Uh, attached to the top of the stone. So, if you wanted to get in the wrong way, uh, you're going to suffer for it. But thieves and robbers, that was the way that they would attempt to get in. They wouldn't even try to get in by the door. So, the ones that came through the door, they were the real shepherds. They were the ones that the porter or the gatekeeper could say, yeah, this guy belongs. Yes, these sheep belong. If they came in another way, they're going to run them off they're going to treat them as the enemy. They're going to treat them as having bad intentions, and we're going to get rid of you. Look at verse 2. It says, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That gives us indication that the only legitimate way to be in the sheepfold is to come in through the door. It, It identifies the shepherd, but it also identifies who the true sheep are, It says in verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, 
for they do not know the voice of strangers. The sheep are in the place where they know the voice of their shepherd, in the sheepfold. This relationship that Jesus has as the good shepherd is signified by they know his voice. They listen to him. They follow him. Now, this door is to keep things out, things that don't belong, but it is also to show who does belong. And I like how uh, one uh, author was talking about this exclusive relationship. He says, this personal pronoun, I, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, I am the door. He excludes everything and everybody else so that the church, although a divine institution, is not the door. The preacher, although able to point hearers to the door, is not the door. The ordinances or sacraments of the church, although given by the Lord, are not the door. Good works, although enjoined upon believers, are not the door. Jesus Christ is the door. It's very specific, and Jesus carefully points that out. Calvin says, let's be satisfied with this general view that, as Christ states, a resemblance between the church as a sheepfold in which God assembles all His people so also he compares himself to the door because there's no other entrance into the church but by Christ himself. That's the exclusive nature of what Jesus is claiming. As the door, there's no other way in. As he says later in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is another visual representation of the door is the only way. Calvin goes on to say, hence it follows that they alone are good shepherds who lead men straight to Christ, and that they are truly gathered into the fold of Christ so as to belong to His flock who devote themselves to Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, you have elders and pastors at this church whose greatest desire in identifying who is in the sheepfold, in talking about church membership with each of you who are members. We've made clear that the way to know that you belong in this church, in the sheepfold, is who is Jesus Christ to you? Not where did you grow up, not who did you know, not when did you walk an aisle and pray a prayer, not when did you sign a date in the front of your Bible. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Because that's where salvation is found in no other name under heaven except Jesus Christ. And that's so important for us. We can't make any other standard for membership in the church than what Christ has given, and He has given Himself as that standard. Now, let's consider the the thieves and robbers, the ones that go around. Verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. What else do we learn about them? In verse 8, we see that all who came before me, Jesus says, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And then verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus is distinguishing himself from these thieves and robbers, of which he's not a part of that group. We know who they are because of the way that they come in. We know who they are because the sheep don't listen to them. They don't follow them. We know that their intention is only to kill to steal, and to destroy. These are dangerous characters. How can we identify them? How can we stay away from them? 
Well, first we've got to know who they were in the context that Jesus taught. In, in John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking of the Pharisees, the Pharisees who had so mistreated this poor blind man, this, these Pharisees who were falsely promoting that obedience to the law in every scruple was the way in which you would be accepted by God, keeping the Sabbath to every degree. They were the ones that went before, if you could more broadly think of it as those false teachers in Jesus' day. There were many false messiahs when Jesus was walking the earth who said that they had a corner on the market of truth and that you need to follow me and my wisdom and I will lead you into the kingdom. And false teachers that were promoting themselves and not pointing to Christ. You, you will know a false teacher if they're not pointing to Christ. And then we see it's important to notice that Jesus was more concerned with the enemies that were seeking to be from within than necessarily those that were from without. I mean, the Jewish people of that day had a lot of problems with the Roman government. They had political problems, no doubt. But Jesus is more concerned with those who had spiritual problems, falsehood, heresy, false teaching. And that, I think, is what we should be worried about too and concerned about. Uh, the Pharisees and Judaizers, false messiahs, they were part of the synagogue system itself. They were, they were in the, their churches, so to speak, and that was where the danger was coming from. Now, today, false teachers and corrupt teachers, they exist. Outside of Christianity, yes, there are false religions that lead many people astray across the world. Buddhism is not the truth. Islam is not the truth. Hinduism is not the truth. There's a false notion of how you can be saved through those various world religions, and, and they're not the truth, and, and they're dangerous. And they're not to be believed because the truth is found in what God has revealed in His Word. But there's also a lie and false teaching that is masquerading within the church, false teachers and corrupt teachers within churches that would call themselves Christians, and all they are are thieves and robbers who promote a gospel of salvation that, that's not in line with what God says in His Word. They have a message of salvation from social inequality or income inequality, salvation by inclusivity and tolerance. There's anything and everything that must be accepted and tolerated in order for you to be really demonstrating the love of Jesus and being a true Christian. And so, these false ideas about what Christianity should look like are poisoning the churches and leading so many astray. A theology of health and wealth and prosperity that Jesus came to meet all your temporal and physical needs, and that's where, if you have enough faith, you can have all these needs met. And these problems are not the biggest problems that we face, though. And this message of salvation without a cross, this message of salvation without a heaven and a hell, is not the message of the Word of God. We have the truth that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. In, first, in Acts 4.12, we see that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
In 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And in Matthew 7, Jesus says to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The real Jesus of the Word of God is the narrow gate. And the world and the churches that are so enthralled with the ways of the world have broadened this gospel to go beyond Jesus, that whatever works for you, whatever is right in your eyes, whatever truth you want to believe, whoever you want to see as a path to heaven is acceptable to me because if it works for you, it works for you. And that's not the way that Jesus presents himself. It's not that I'm being exclusive about Jesus being the only way. Jesus was exclusive about being the only way. In this very statement, I am the door. If you miss Jesus, you miss it all. But what does Jesus do as the door? How does he function? How does he, what does he bring for us? We see in verse 9, it's where we find safe sanctuary. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved. Well, when you see the Bible talk about being saved, you've got to ask yourself, well, saved from what? What is, he, what is he describing? Because I think in our culture today, there's a whole lot of confusion about what we might need to be saved from. And what the Bible describes as being saved from is our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is that there is an eternity to be spent in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. And there's appointed unto man once to die, and then there's a judgment. And we're going to face our Creator and Maker, and we're going to have to give an account for our lives. And there's a standard of judgment, and that standard isn't on the curve God grades us according to His perfect standard that He has revealed, and we all fall short of God's glory and His standard. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a substitute. We need Christ. And so, the ultimate reality, the ultimate salvation that we need is for our soul in eternity. There's so much temporal that we live for, and I understand it. We get bogged down. We get, we get so tunnel vision on our, our health problems, our financial problems, our marriage problems, our parenting problems, and the here and now just weighs in on us. So it's hard to look up and to consider the eternal problems that we face. But when the Scriptures talk about salvation, it's talking about salvation in terms of eternal life and eternal death. Jesus is the way for us to be saved for all eternity. But He also gives us hope, gives us blessings for this life now. If we go on to read in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So going in and out and finding pasture, that's part of daily life. That's, that's what we need to survive, to, to get by, the sheep and its sustenance. Yes, they need a, a, a safe place 
so that they know they're secure. And we, we have that safe place and, and heaven secure for us. But what about the here and now? What does our salvation mean for us today? And Jesus says, I came to give you life and that you may have it abundantly. So much has been said about what abundant life is, and it seems like every marketer of every Christian book wants to sell you on this idea of what your, can lo- what your life can look like if you have an abundant life. God wants you to have an abundant life, and what that means is happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. A good family, a good job, a good wife, a good everything's going your way, and that abundant life is this American dream, and those kind of get melded together, and Christianity starts to take this, this form of a, of a prosperity gospel, a health and wealth. If you just have enough faith to believe, if you buy this next book and this next program and listen to this certain preacher, and then you'll find the way to have a real abundant life. But when Jesus talked about abundance, listen very carefully to what He said in Luke twelve fifteen. He said to them, take care be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If somebody's trying to wrap possessions and stuff and material things into what the abundant life looks like, Jesus has already said, yeah, don't be falling for that trap. Don't fall into that rut. Covetousness, getting stuff. What I love to do is to consider what our catechism does when, uh, in Westminster Catechism question 36, it helps to boil down all of the Bible, what it has to say about our Christian life now. And we read about justification, we read about adoption, we read about sanctification, and these big words are then kind of spelled out, and the the Scripture verses that support their answers are are footnoted in the confession and the catechism. It's it's so helpful, and I, I commend it to you to look at question number 36 because it takes our salvation and relates it to the here and now. And it says, what benefits do we in this life experience? What what flows from our justification, our adoption, and our sanctification? And this is how it's laid out for us. The benefits we receive are assurance of God's love. That security is what every true sheep who has come in through the door, can experience. That goes hand in hand with your salvation here and now. And not always do we experience this assurance in its fullness every day, but it is for us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be assured that God loves you. If you are trusting in the Son, He loves you as He loves His Son. And you don't have to worry what other people think about you and whether other people love you and accept you. You can be certain and have assurance of God's love for you. He's not fickle. He doesn't go back and forth. His love is constant. You can be assured of His love. You can have peace of conscience. Oh, the world has all sorts of ways to soothe your conscience, your guilt, and your shame. And it mostly comes with numbing or forgetting. But Jesus comes and He gives you real peace. He pays for our sin, removing the guilt and shame. You can have peace of conscience here and now. You can have joy in the Holy Ghost. That joy is through 
the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I, and I wish I had time to just flesh out how the Holy Spirit ministers to my spirit and allows me to cry out, Abba, Father, reassuring me that I am a son of the Almighty God. He convicts me of sin. He reveals and illumines the Word of God so I can understand the truth. The Holy Spirit is a blessing in our lives. There's a joy that we have in the Holy Ghost. There's an increase of grace. And this happens as I have an increasing understanding of how sinful I really am, how bad off I actually am. I start to understand how gracious God truly is, how gracious He is and loving to, to forgive me all of my sins, past, present, all the sins that I will commit. Jesus assures me of His love. He gives me peace of conscience. He gives me joy in the Holy Spirit. He gives me an increase in grace, and He gives me perseverance therein to the end. He knows His sheep. He calls them out by name. My Father holds me in His hand, and no one can pluck me out. This is the way that God preserves us, and we persevere in the faith that God has given us as a gift. It's all of His grace. It's all the salvation that He works in us, and we get all these benefits. So are there benefits here and now to being a believer in Jesus Christ that we receive from our salvation? Yes, most assuredly, but not the way that the thieves and robbers would have you to believe that you can have all the good stuff that everybody else around you wants, the material possessions and the things. No, the real stuff is in Christ Jesus. It truly is. Jesus is exclusive. Jesus says He is the door. There aren't other doors. There aren't other ways in. There are not many roads up to heaven. We must beware of the false teachers that exist, not just outside of the church, but within churches, people that call themselves Christians, but they're just robbers and thieves. And we need to know the truth of God's Word to be able to stand up against that. You're not going to know who the Jesus of the Bible is unless you get into your Bibles and read it and study it for yourself. The imaginations of who God is to me or my God is this or my God would never do that is not where we can live as believers. We need to stand against those lies by knowing who Jesus says He truly is. We need to understand the true gospel of grace that's taught in the Scriptures. We need to get into our Bible and know it, know the truth. Stand against the lies that you hear from false teachers today. Realize what you are saved from in all eternity and what you are saved to in this life now. Vast benefits that God has for you that you can tap into. You can tap into because you have gone in to the sheepfold through the door. We sang earlier, to God be the glory. We should rejoice. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that we may go in. Jesus is the gate of the sheep. He is the door. He's opened a way for us to have peace with the Father. Through His own body, the veil torn, His flesh, He has made sacrifice that made peace with God. What joy we have because Jesus is our door. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank You for the truth of Your Word and the impact that it has on our just day-to-day living, Lord, that we are different, that we are new, and that we are transformed because of who Jesus is and was and forever will be. Lord, I pray that You would ground us in the truth of who Jesus is and that we would live our lives in light of that truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The elders will come and prepare the table as we sing our hymn of preparation, our hymn of response. Hymn number 146, Break Thou the Bread of Life. Let's stand and sing verses 1 and 2. <laughs> 